You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. In this episode of Inside Healthcare, we take a look back at what we've learned since the pandemic hit over two years ago. We first chat with an upcoming star speaker at NCQA's 2023 Health Innovation Summit on what we've garnered from the growth of telehealth in remote medicine. And then, in our second interview in this episode, we discuss the public's conflict with immunization and new strategies on encouraging vaccination. But first... When I started producing this show back in 2020, before we'd really dived into digital transformation of the healthcare landscape, before we even talked that much about resolving historic gaps in health equity, telehealth was a hot topic. Imagine having a doctor's appointment from anywhere. Of course, you'd need to be somewhere that had a computer and a camera and a microphone, and then you could see and hear each other and send information. And you'd need really good internet service for that camera and the microphone, and you need a strong enough signal. You'd also need a way for your doctor to check your vitals remotely. Okay, so it's not so simple. It sounds complicated, right? Uh, yeah, it can be complicated, at least a little bit, but it's also revolutionary in concept and application, and it's well worth the effort to develop. In this segment, we focus on telehealth with an expert who's been championing telehealth for rural communities since before this podcast even started. Dr. Leslie Island is an associate professor of medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine, Division of Diabetes, Endocrinology, and Metabolism at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Dr. Island will also be paneling with NCQA President Peggy O'Kane and others at our Health Innovation Summit in late October 2023. The panel, which includes former Inside Healthcare guest Dr. Craig Samet, is called Payment Models and Digital Transformation. Panelists will discuss opportunities and challenges associated with digital transformation for a fee-for-service landscape. More back Dr. Ireland now. She's also Medical Director of Patient Experience and Digital Health for Nebraska Medicine and has been Medical Director of the Endocrine Telehealth Program there since 2014. The program provides care via telehealth to eight rural community hospitals in Nebraska and Iowa. Dr. Ireland's clinical areas of interest and expertise are remote delivery of endocrine care and providing endocrine support for primary care providers in rural communities. As you'll hear now, the old challenges to telehealth remain, but every day brings us a step closer to complete connectivity, which in turn would deliver total equitable care to America. Anyone can benefit from telehealth. Um, When you're talking about the specific specialties, there are some specialties like mine that are more amenable to telehealth because in endocrinology, we're primarily looking at 
at data, we're looking at lab values, we're looking at maybe glucose data for people with diabetes that are using technology that's often available to me in the cloud. Um, that is, is very amenable. And many of my patients, um, I can see almost entirely via telehealth. I see patients primarily in very rural areas in Nebraska that don't have access to an in-person endocrinologist. Um, but in terms of other specialties, I think you would be surprised at what specialties can have at least a component of their care delivered via telehealth. In my health system, when you look at the top 10 specialties that have delivered care via telehealth and are continuing to deliver care via telehealth, sometimes it's obvious, endocrinology, behavioral health, primary care, but then you also have specialties like OBGYN and bariatrics and urology entering the top 10. Um, and it's not, you know, again, 100% telehealth, but you can have people who have had maybe a minor surgical procedure and the check-in needs to happen a week or two after their procedure. But uh, many providers for a minor procedure are okay having that check-in happen via telehealth. And especially when the patient lives a four-hour drive, you know, one way from their main uh, medical center, I think we need to start thinking what's appropriate for an in-person visit and what can, what kind of quick follow-up can be done via telehealth. There's so many patients uh, who would be under your care who, because they live in such rural areas, they're, like you just said, they would take such a long time to be able to actually see somebody in person. But that also leads to talking about the challenges still in in making telehealth uh, a reality for some people. What are the some of the challenges that that you've experienced? If if you have any uh, examples of of patients' uh, experiences that you can uh, let us know about. Yeah, well, I think to backtrack a, a, just a little bit, I think the benefits of telehealth can fall in sort of two different buckets. There's telehealth can improve access to care for whom receiving in-person care is very much a challenge. But then it can also just improve convenience for many of my patients in urban areas who maybe you know don't wanna take several hours off of work or away from school to have a visit. Maybe they work from home. I have a lot of patients who are like guys that work in IT and work from home and they just wanna log on and have their 20 minute visit and go about their day and not have to take any PTO for that. Um, so I, I think access and, and convenience are sort of two, um, two distinct reasons why a particular patient may want to do telehealth. In terms of challenges for telehealth, um, I think there's a number. At the patient level, um, I see three challenges to having a patient have a successful telehealth visit. Um, they need to have stable, reliable, high-speed internet at speeds high enough for synchronous video conferencing, like Zoom. They need to have access to a connected device. So that can be a tablet, that can be a phone with a webcam, that can be a laptop, that can be a desktop. Um, and then they need to have an adequate amount of digital literacy to facilitate and sometimes troubleshoot the visit. And if you don't have a component of all three of those, um, you're at a disadvantage when it comes to receiving care. I wanna ask you about the economics involved with telehealth and uh, overall with digital health solutions. So um, we're talking now more about the clinicians uh, and we're talking about the patients also for billing for services. So what are challenges in terms of uh, billing for services when it comes to digital health? So payment parity for telehealth in many areas of our country is still not guaranteed. Um, I think as um, somebody who works within a health system, we've been very hesitant to 
put money into a lot of resources for telehealth, um, not knowing if it's going to be uh, continually available to us over the next few years, right? Um, and so we feel lucky now in our state of Nebraska, just this past legislative session, we have now um, passed a law mandating payment parity for telehealth for people with private insurance. And so we have a little more reassurance there now that uh, that law is going into effect this fall. We also are lucky to have payment parity for our Medicaid patients with telehealth, so we feel good about that. And then CMS, I think, is, is very promising, but it's still um, not guaranteed long-term. The CMS uh, 2024 uh, physician fee schedule was just released, and thankfully, it does extend um, the telehealth waivers and flexibilities for another calendar year. Um, but to my understanding, we're not guaranteed anything beyond that. It's hopeful, but not guaranteed. Um, and so I think health systems have to look at what the landscape looks like in their state to determine um, if, this is, if this is feasible for them to put financial resources into long-term telehealth solutions that maybe a year or two down the road, they may not be able to utilize because of legislation. Unfortunately, I think it's true for most places that health systems still benefit more when the patient shows up in person. Uh, we, as a health system, can get additional revenue from people's labs that they have drawn on campus, people's radiology studies that they have drawn on campus. And if they're getting them closer to home, you know, at their local community hospital um, in preparation for a telehealth visit, that is considered lost revenue for that health system. And this is especially important to recognize now, uh, when many health systems are in the red or there are razor thin margins, and we need to be very careful how policies incentivize health systems actually away from telehealth when budgets are so tight right now. So on the positive side, let's go to the positive side. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, we're also we're future casting. So we're looking a year, uh, three years down the road. How does digitalization, how can it and how is it already uh, improving efficiencies? How do we ultimately save everybody money? Uh, that is a great question that I wish I had the, I uh, knew the answer to. I think, um, you know, if I were to look back in the spring and summer of 2020, when my endocrinology clinic was primarily seeing people at home, we were exquisitely efficient in how we handled that shift um, because we were doing... A, virtually 100% telehealth at that point. And so we were divided up into teams and our medical assistants were calling patients, making sure they were prepared prior to the appointment. You know, the doctor wants you to get this lab. Uh, why don't you go a few days to a week ahead of time, get that done. They would follow up, make sure I had the results prior for my patients on diabetes technology. They were making sure that data was available to me in the cloud. And if not, they were helping the patient troubleshoot to get their um, device connected. And so when I would start a telehealth visit with a patient, and I was also at home, everything was available for me. Um, and it was incredibly efficient because that was sort of the, the only model of care we were doing. And now that we've gone back to this hybrid model, I think a lot of times we are still having patients, you know, just waiting for them to show up and then they're getting labs and then we're following up on the back end. And so I do think there are sort of processes that we learned quickly when we were doing an all telehealth approach that went very well. And then now that we're back to this hybrid model, we've lost that a little bit. Patients since the beginning of the pandemic have had 
uh, a very interesting uh, set of experiences in terms of self-care, uh, looking out for their own health, um, being told, for example, to stay home if they could, to look after themselves, uh, check your uh, symptoms yourself, uh, just and people going online trying to find solutions for things and gradually sort of training the public uh, to be involved, invested in self-care, but at the same time, not go asking for medical attention or medical help if they thought they could take care of it. How can we help to train a patient using telehealth to be more involved in their own self-care and their own healthcare journey uh, and in, in taking care of themselves at home so that they they have the follow-up and they don't uh, persist in, in having problems that would bring them right back to the doctor again? That's a great question. Um, I do think um, that having access to a secure patient portal where they can see their records and they can securely message their provider and get information through that trusted system um, is one step in the right direction. I think people are empowered. At least I find that people are empowered when they're able to review their lab results and trend them and see how they compare to previous uh, results. And then they'll ask me during the visit, you know, what numbers they should be expecting or what their goals are. Um, and so just giving people access to their records um, and that increased transparency, letting them view their progress notes after the visit um, uh, is a step in the right direction. I would also say that um, having, when a patient has a successful telehealth visit, it's because they take ownership and they have some forethought into what's going to happen during this visit and what do I need to do to be prepared for that visit. I need to go get labs. I don't know that I have those lab orders. So I'm going to message my doctor and ask them to send lab orders to my local doctor's office. Um, I need help getting my device connected to the cloud so my endocrinologist can see all my blood glucose data. Um, I think when people do that and then myself as the clinician compliments them, like, thank you so much for getting all of your ducks in a row prior to this visit. You know, I appreciate not having the first part of this visit being, you know, tech support, we can jump right in and get to what's what's going on. And, um, it, it, you know, they they start to, things, things start to click. They start to understand that I did this work ahead of time to allow me to have the most productive, efficient visit. Um, I'm no longer nervously waiting by the phone for my doctor to call or message me afterward with the results. And this was because I was proactive about my visit. And so I think people just seeing that click for people makes them much more engaged in their care. I find that people who maybe, um, didn't have the best show rate at some of my in-person visits once care became more convenient for them and they had to take less time work um, off of work and school. I've seen them, you know, so much more often now because they found a model of care that's engaging to them um, and is more convenient for them. So I mentioned how patients have lost confidence in the healthcare ecosystem. It's, let's say if they're going through their own patient journey and they just have frustrations of, you know, it, it happens. They go from one place to the next and they seem to be filling out the same forms or they have to repeat the same history. The digital health solutions that we're talking about, that you're going to be talking about, uh, telehealth is one aspect of it. This is another aspect, which we some call, sometimes we talk about it as uh, interoperability, just being able to get these records from one doctor to the next. H how do we improve on these frustrations? How do we 
how do we level things out for uh, improving the the patient experience in, in this sense? It's a huge issue. I have patients, it's not uncommon for me to have patients that um, are seeing physicians in two, three, four different health systems. And then maybe they're also participating in a program, a remote patient monitoring program through their insurance company. And so a separate nurse is calling them routinely and going over maybe blood pressure or weight data for them. Um, and then they see a different optometrist at another local clinic that's unaffiliated with any of the other health systems. So it's a huge issue. Um, Many of my visits uh, contain the phrases, they said they would send that to you. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking through scan documents and I'm, I'm doing my best and it's, it's just not there. So um, again, go, going back to the, uh, what I was saying previously, giving people access to their records and having that transparency, um, it, it feels like I hope at some point it becomes unnecessary, but it's often saved me when somebody has said, you know what, I just have my kidney function checked with my primary care provider. They didn't send that to you. And I say, I, I'm sorry, I'll try to follow up afterwards. Um, but then now people are saying, you know what? I think I can find that information in my portal. Hang on, let me pull that up. And they're whipping out their smartphone during my visit and accessing the lab results you know, from a different health system that I don't have access to. And they're showing me the results. And so at least we're getting an answer within their visit. I hate that the onus falls on the patient and that we, you know, I'm not able to, uh, to handle it on my end. Um, but that's, that's the reality, unfortunately. So what do we do to get care to those who need it? Talk, talk about that a little bit. Um, how do we help to uh, deliver care to populations that have been historically and are currently underrepresented? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. So a couple of different things. I think somebody with chronic disease three or four years ago may um, have just had an in-person visit with their primary care provider and or a, a specialist or two on a, on a recurring basis. So maybe their, the way they were managing their healthcare was just quarterly in-person visits or in-person visits, you know, even monthly or every other month, depending on the number of problems. And so um, that was a big, that's, that's a big ask to somebody, especially if, um, they live in a more rural area and don't have access to local specialists, right? That's a lot of time on the road, time away from work, school, caregiving responsibilities. And so now I think with telehealth or, or other digital tools like remote patient monitoring, we should be taking a step back to say, does that person really need to come in person every other month for a, you know an in-person office visit? Or can we step back and, and think about the year as a whole and say, you know what? Maybe I just need to see them every other visit and then off sequence, they could do a telehealth visit, or maybe I need to see them half as often. And then I could enroll them in a remote patient monitoring program and reach out to them as needed kind of asynchronously for the, through the portal. Or maybe I shouldn't see them as frequently, but they have access to the patient portal and they can send me a secure message if anything uh, concerning were, were to arise, or I could check in periodically asynchronously with them that way. I think um, it's a disservice to our patients to keep doing what we've always been doing, which is in-person office visits. Um, we have many more tools in our toolkit now that we need to step back and see if this would be, um, you know, better for the patient in terms of, uh, primarily in terms of convenience, but also access to care. Okay, you got the five-year question. Five years down yeah. the road, what should a patient's journey to health look like five years from now? I think it should it should include a mix of in-person visits, a mix of telehealth visits, if the patient wants to do a telehealth visit, 
um, occasional check-ins or messaging via the uh, with the patient's care provider via an uh, asynchronous secure patient portal, and maybe some remote patient monitoring depending on their chronic disease and whether that's amenable to it. I think it should include a mix of really, you know, three or four modalities. So when I mentioned the three things that are impeding people's access to telehealth care, the lack of high-speed internet, the lack of connected device um, ownership or access, and then the digital literacy, I feel like we haven't moved the needle on many of those things um, during COVID. And, and these are all things that take you know, years to develop and test and know what's going to be effective. Um, in terms of the internet access, I know there are um, you know, programs um, and people out there working to expand broadband access across our country, especially in rural areas. Uh, and for a while, and I believe it's still ongoing, there, there um, is an FCC program that if you meet the criteria, you get a monthly uh, stipend for uh, internet services. And then you get, um, you can also get a one-time stipend for the purchase of a connected device. In terms of digital literacy, you know, I think we have a huge opportunity to develop programs that can improve digital literacy, but those take time to test. And I think different programs maybe fit, you know, better fits for different subsets of people. And, and that's going to um, not happen overnight. Uh, my pipe dream is to be, uh, it's to do telehealth and have telehealth hubs in like local public libraries, because I just think it's such a great fit where you can go um, to a trusted community resource and have a librarian that's a trusted community resource and well-versed in helping people um, uh, improve their literacy in, in various areas and have, have a facilitated visit there uh, where there's free Wi-Fi and maybe a computer set up in a small room. Um, I know a couple communities have done it with good success, but I would love to see programs like that um, expand and support people in their communities. Dr. Leslie Island, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and Medical Director of Patient Experience and Digital Health at Nebraska Medicine. It's time again now to focus on the place, the place, that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. And that place is NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida will host our annual convention. Bringing together leaders from across the healthcare ecosystem, the summit will focus on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, value-based care, and more. It will feature thought-provoking speakers, unique education opportunities, and an exhibit floor and pavilion showcasing the latest in innovation. As you can hear, between now and the summit, each episode of Inside Healthcare will include, and including in this episode too, an exclusive interview with a featured speaker that you'll see and you can hear and you can meet at the summit. So keep coming back for more. Register now for NCQA's 2023 Health Innovation Summit. Go now, ncqasummit.com for more. In mid-2023, the federal government reached an inflection point in its approach to the COVID pandemic. Various emergency measures, both medical and financial, were ended. While this certainly prompted the medical and public health communities to try to find ways to emulate the benefits that the government had provided for over a year, 
it also gave them pause. What if we learned from the pandemic? With backs up against the wall and clinical care pushed to capacity, 2023 was a time for reflection and reinvigoration. In this interview, you'll hear about one such effort to see what we've learned about and gain new insights into approaches to adult immunization and improving adult immunization rates. A panel of experts, including partners from NCQA, convened in June of 2023 for a roundtable discussion on adult immunization. They not only discussed clinical guidelines and approaches to better health, they considered simple human behavior, how to rebuild trust with patients, and ultimately find new ways to encourage them to come to vaccination. In September 2023, NCQA released a white paper summarizing the roundtable's discussions and their conclusions. You'll find the online gateway for the paper by clicking on the link in this episode's description. First, a bit about our guest and our guest host. Megan Lindley, MPH, is the Adult Vaccination Team Lead of the Applied Research, Implementation Science, and Evaluation Branch in the Immunization Services Division of the CDC. Her areas of research interest include immunization law and policy, adult immunization quality measurement, vaccination in pregnancy, and healthcare personnel vaccination. She was an active member from 2012 to 2019 and co-chair from 2018 to 2019 of the National Adult and Influenza Immunization Summit's Quality Measures Workgroup, which developed two immunization quality measures that were added to HEDIS in 2019, a measure of routine adult vaccination and a composite measure of vaccination of pregnant women. Ms. Lindley has authored or co-authored over 100 peer-reviewed publications. To host this interview, I turn the reins over to a familiar voice on this show, Dr. Safine Byron, Assistant Vice President for Performance Measurement at NCQA. Can you tell us how you would characterize the state of adult immunization now in the U.S.? Uh, Yeah, I think adult vaccination now is in a really interesting place uh, because on the one hand, you know, adults are really substantially under vaccinated uh, compared to pediatric vaccinations in the United States. Um, So one example would be for the the 2021-2022 flu season, um, less than half of U.S. adults got a flu shot. Uh, and that's a pretty consistent finding for routine adult vaccinations. And what is worse is that we observe some really troubling racial and ethnic disparities in adult vaccination coverage, in addition to coverage just being uh, poor overall. Uh, so in that season I just mentioned, for example, uh, 54% of white and Asian adults got a flu shot, but only 38% of black adults did. Uh, 41% of American Indian and Alaska Native adults and 42% of Hispanic adults. Uh, And these disparities are something that we see, unfortunately, pretty consistently across routinely recommended adult vaccinations. Uh, On the other hand, uh, the COVID-19 vaccination program, the early rollout is really an incredible success story for adult vaccinations. So CDC data show that for the primary series of COVID-19 vaccinations, 79% of U.S. adults completed a primary series, and that includes almost 95% of adults ages 65 and over. And that is just an unheard of uh, level of vaccination coverage uh, for adults in the U.S. And similarly, uh, the kind of 
racial and ethnic disparities in vaccination coverage that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic uh, through some really uh, dedicated work were narrowed or even eliminated for that primary series vaccination. And so I think it shows with really dedicated attention and effort, we can achieve high and equitable vaccination coverage in the United States. So that's very exciting. It's exciting and it's really great to hear. Um, and actually, this is a topic that came up about this roundtable that NCQA convened. Um, I know that we were discussing this issue and specifically how the COVID-19 pandemic may have impacted immunization. Can you tell us a little about the roundtable, who participated, the goals of the discussion, a little bit more about that? Sure. So uh, I was really excited to be invited to participate in NCQA's roundtable on adult immunization. Uh, I've been studying adult immunization uh, implementation for almost 20 years, and it is a topic that I am absolutely passionate about. So I was very pleased to be invited to discuss it at length. Um, and in addition to me, uh, some of the folks on the roundtable were uh, clinicians who vaccinate adults, so physicians and pharmacists. There were members uh, of immunization advocacy groups, uh, policy and legislative experts, um, and experts in healthcare quality improvement and immunization information systems. And these uh, are people who, you know, are dedicated to adult vaccination, who were on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and uh, many of them were people who uh, I have worked with for years over my career. So uh, a really great group. Uh, and, and the point of the roundtable was uh, to kind of characterize the current challenges uh, to adult vaccination in the United States and try to think about some viable uh, solutions to those challenges really taking into account the, the lessons that were learned during the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell us uh, the goal of the white paper that has come out of the roundtable? Uh, sure. So, uh, like I said, we, we had this discussion around uh, adult vaccination, and it was really kind of centered around three big bucket questions. So what are the barriers to vaccinating adults in the U.S. at the patient level? What are the barriers at the healthcare provider level? And then what are the barriers at the community level? And so for each of those levels, we, we took some time to, to walk through what we thought the biggest problems were uh, and then identify some solutions. Uh, and, you know, it, it was a, a group with a, a pretty diverse background, but we were still able to sort of come to four key recommendations to improve adult vaccination in the United States. Uh, and so NCQA has summarized uh, our discussions, some background information on, on the current state of adult immunization and those four recommendations into a really nice white paper. You mentioned a little bit about the disparities that we've seen in immunizations, um, just sort of historically. And although there were gains during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about providing equitable care to underserved populations now, given some of the lessons that we learned? I think one of the biggest contributors to that narrowing of disparities in the COVID-19 primary series uh, uptake that we saw was really the, the huge amount of work that was being done down at the community level uh, in uh, across the United States. Um, I don't think it's accurate to say that mistrust is the only or even a, necessarily a primary driver of disparities in adult vaccination, but it's certainly absolutely true that there are uh, communities that don't uh, particularly trust the government or the medical establishment that are pretty 
wary of uh, guidance and information coming uh, out of those entities uh, for, for good reason, due to historical injustices and, and really deeply rooted systemic racism. Uh, and the thing about the, the organizations that are, are working on uh, the ground in those communities is that they're trusted voices. Uh, so they are a way to provide uh, accurate COVID-19 information to uh, people in those communities. Um, and one way that, that CDC supported those organizations during the pandemic was through what we called our Partnering for Vaccine Equity Program. Uh, and this was a, a program that we put together where we funded organizations at the national, state, and local levels. And then those organizations in turn looked to their community partners and worked directly with them to do things like provide education to clinicians working in the community on COVID-19 vaccination, um, to train trusted messengers and create a trusted social media uh, about COVID-19 vaccination that could be disseminated, and uh, in some cases to provide COVID-19 vaccines uh, at locations that were trusted by and accessible to community members. Uh, and this uh, was really a, an incredible effort. Uh, the network is over 500 organizations. It spans the entire United States. Um, and they really have done and, in fact, continue to do uh, a lot of good work. Uh, so if people are interested, would love for them to go to the Partnering for Vaccine Equity or P4VE website to learn more. Can you tell us how messaging may have changed recently, um, maybe given the pandemic? Do we have any new tools to, to message the importance of vaccinations to patients? Yeah, I think there's uh, a lot of complexity in uh, the uh, messaging uh, around vaccination in some ways uh, after the pandemic. Uh, so we know that there were a few but pretty vocal voices uh, spreading misinformation and disinformation uh, about COVID-19 vaccination. Uh, I think that as a response to that, you know, we've done a lot of thinking about, uh, again, how can we find uh, not only what do we say about vaccination, but who is saying it? Uh, not only is that person credible, but is that person someone who the listener is going to trust? Uh, certainly, we're, we're trying to take all the lessons of uh, COVID-19 and uh, apply them to routine vaccination. Uh, and I think that's especially important because, uh, unfortunately, we do know that routine vaccination for, for adults uh, and, in fact, for, for pretty much everybody declined during the COVID-19 pandemic. So people were either being asked to, to stay at home to, to slow the spread of disease and flatten the curve, or they were simply afraid to go into their healthcare provider office and, and get those routine vaccines. Um, so we do have some work to do in terms of catching people up uh, and making sure that our messaging is uh, informative and trusted is a really important part of that. So turning back to the roundtable, can you tell us about some of the key recommendations that came out of it? There were four key recommendations from the roundtable. Uh, the first had to do with uh, improving dialogue between providers and their patients about adult vaccinations, uh, in particular, you know, establishing trust. Um, Another one was expanding access to adult vaccines through various ways, uh, including things like increasing Medicaid reimbursement for adult vaccination, uh, implementing standing orders for vaccination in clinical practices, uh, and continuing to, to do that sort of community level partnership work and really kind of leverage those relationships. 
Uh, the third recommendation had to do with uh, data integration, uh, making immunization information systems, which is uh, uh, also sometimes known as immunization registries, more accessible and more usable and making sure that we get adult doses into those registries. Uh, and finally, to uh, adopt NCQA as a HEDIS measure for uh, adult immunization status to really um, uh, allow us to measure vaccination better uh, and to kind of improve the integration of adult vaccination into clinical practice. One of the things that really excites me about those recommendations is the way that they invite us as an immunization community to, to do what we discussed, to really leverage those lessons from the, the COVID-19 pandemic and figure out how we can make those work for routine adult vaccination. Um, and one example that uh, I like to talk about is thinking about the, the immunization uh, information systems. So it, it's true that traditionally there are a lot fewer uh, adult vaccinations recorded in those systems than there are pediatric vaccinations. Um, and part of that might be because uh, in some states there are requirements to report some or all pediatric vaccine doses to the registries, but a lot of it just has to do with the, the real strength of our national pediatric vaccination program and, and which providers are used to using the, the immunization information systems and reporting doses. Um, but during the COVID-19 pandemic, all those doses administered had to be reported to CDC. So vaccination providers who were vaccinating adults got used to reporting those doses to immunization information systems and other health information systems. Uh, and the other thing that was really exciting about that was um, the completeness and the accuracy of the data that we uh, obtained through those systems on race and ethnicity of patients improved just dramatically over the course of the pandemic. And so that's the kind of information that really allows us to examine inequities in vaccination and, and target action where it's needed to reduce them. So I think if we can continue that level of reporting of adult vaccination into immunization information systems, then, then we can use that information to identify what, what we call pockets of need, so uh, areas where adults are um, under immunized, uh, and then direct specific attention and action there to, to get those rates up and to avoid vaccine-preventable disease outbreaks. Can you talk more about the recommendation to expand access by overcoming financial barriers to vaccinations? We know that financial barriers are one of the biggest challenges cited by healthcare providers uh, as a barrier to vaccinating adults. Um, and the changes that were made to the Medicaid program as part of the Inflation Reduction Act are actually going into effect uh, next month in October. Uh, and so that's really exciting because it's going to mean that for uh, nearly all adult Medicaid beneficiaries, uh, every recommended vaccine is going to be covered without cost sharing. That's something that hasn't been the case uh, in the past for traditionally eligible beneficiaries. So it's very exciting uh, and should help lower some of those uh, patient side financial barriers. Uh, the problem is that those changes to Medicaid uh, don't address under vaccination in the uninsured and underinsured uh, adult population. Uh, and those are adults who have even lower vaccination coverage than, than low income adults on Medicaid. Um, so one thing uh, that has uh, started in that area, the administration has just launched what's called the Bridge Access Program, which is going to provide COVID-19 vaccines at no cost uh, across the country to uninsured and underinsured adults. 
even as uh, most adults uh, will receive COVID-19 vaccination uh, through their insurance plan. So we at CDC are uh, very excited about the potential impact of the program, uh, and we're working very hard to implement and evaluate it with other partners in government, public health, uh, at the community level, and pharmacies. Um, but unfortunately, that program uh, is limited to COVID-19 vaccination and doesn't necessarily address uh, the larger problem of under-vaccination for routine adult vaccines among the uninsured. What are your hopes for one to two years from now with respect to adult vaccinations? Uh, so my biggest hope, I think, uh, would be to see a program for adults that is the equivalent of our Vaccines for Children program, which is a national program that provides recommended vaccines free of charge to children whose families otherwise can't afford them. Uh, I think more broadly, my hope is that we as an immunization community really continue to leverage and take advantage of this infrastructure that was built during the COVID-19 pandemic, both in terms of our partnerships and in terms of our data systems, and, and really use that to, to move routine uh, adult vaccinations forward. So if there's one thing you could tell the clinical teams that are on the ground, um, what they could do to improve adult vaccinations, what would that be? Sure. So uh, improving uh, adult vaccination in the United States uh, has always been a long game, but there are absolutely things that clinicians can do uh, right now to improve vaccine uptake among their adult patients. Uh, and the first one would be to integrate the standards for adult immunization practice uh, into their clinical workflow. So that means for every patient at every visit, assess their vaccination status, uh, make a strong recommendation for any vaccines that they need, uh, either provide the vaccine or offer the vaccine right there at that visit, uh, or if that's not possible, refer the patient out to a specific location where they can get that vaccine. Uh, and finally, to document the patient's vaccination status in their uh, local immunization information system to make sure that the information is recorded. Uh, and then the, the second thing is really for uh, clinicians to, to understand uh, the, the power of their, their recommendation, to, to be very clear and persistent when recommending vaccines uh, to their patients. Um, so a lot of times, you know, a clinician will offer a vaccine to their adult patient, and for whatever reason, the, the person does not want to get vaccinated that day. Uh, and clinicians who don't follow up on those recommendations at, at future visits are, are really missing out on an opportunity to protect their patients by getting them vaccinated. Um, there was some research done on COVID-19 vaccination showing that repeated offering of the vaccine did result in notably increased vaccination coverage over time. Uh, and it didn't necessarily uh, offend the patients to be asked uh, again and again. Um, so it shows that uh, even people who turn down the vaccine the first time are not necessarily 100% opposed to being vaccinated. Um, there are definitely some patients who are absolutely not gonna get vaccinated no matter what, uh, but most patients just want the opportunity to discuss their questions and concerns with their provider. Uh, and we have many, many years of research showing that healthcare providers are one of the most trusted sources for vaccine information for their patients. And that's even true for patients who aren't necessarily big fans of vaccines. 
So I think just clinicians understanding how incredibly powerful their recommendation to their patients is uh, and really being persistent and making that strong, clear recommendation every time uh, is going to help the, the patients have the opportunity to get vaccinated to protect themselves and protect their families and protect their communities. Megan Lindley, adult vaccination team lead of the Applied Research, Implementation Science and Evaluation Branch of the CDC's Immunization Services Division, speaking with NCQA's Assistant Vice President for Performance Measurement, Dr. Safine Byron. Thank you to Dr. Byron and her team for arranging the interview. And remember, again, click the link to access NCQA's white paper on what we've learned about approaches to adult vaccination. Now some fast facts for you, bits of needed info to lead you and those around you to better health. September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month in the U.S., so here's important information from the CDC on symptoms and screening. I'll have the link to the CDC's info page in this episode's description. Early detection of prostate cancer is key, and in terms of early detection, there are different types of screening. For most patients, a doctor chooses between a physical exam and a blood test called a PSA, or prostate-specific antigen test. PSA is a chemical created and released by the prostate, so too much of it in a person's system isn't normal, though higher levels could indicate an infection or an enlargement of the prostate that's unrelated to cancer. But what happens if your blood test yields a false positive? Something's there, something's maybe wrong, and it's probably not cancer, but you don't really know what it is for sure. So at that point, the doctor will most likely recommend a biopsy. It's really the only way to know for sure if you have prostate cancer, especially if you're asymptomatic. By the way, speaking of symptoms, symptoms can include difficulty with urination, pain in the groin, and blood present in the urine. But why wait to get checked until you have a problem? The CDC recommends that anyone with a prostate get screened for prostate health. NCQA has a number of cancer-related HEDIS screening measures, Colorectal cancer screening, which we call COL or sometimes COLE, assesses adults 50 to 75 years of age who had appropriate screening for colorectal cancer with any of a number of tests, including a colonoscopy every 10 years, computed tomography colonography every 5 years, and a stool sample DNA test every 3 years. Here's what our website says. Treatment for colorectal cancer in its earliest stage can lead to a 90% survival rate after five years. However, more than a third of adults 50 to 75 do not get recommended screenings. Colorectal cancer screening of asymptomatic adults in that age group can catch polyps before they become cancerous or can detect colorectal cancer in its earliest stages when treatment is most effective. Now, these are heavy topics to discuss, I know, but as someone whose family has a history of stomach cancer and colorectal cancer and prostate cancer, I honor all of those who came before me by encouraging you to obtain early screening. If you have a prostate, or if you know someone who does, or if you're over the age of 50, even if you're younger than the age of 50, at least talk to your doctor, and please click the links in this episode's description for more information. Get informed. Stay on top of your screening schedule and stay informed. You've only got one body. 
Well, as we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask for your thoughts now on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. If you're coming up empty, here's our question for this episode. Since the start of the pandemic, what's one thing you've learned about improving your self-care? And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, and maybe you'd like to be that guest, just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. We'll hope to hear from you soon. That's it for episode 115 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. You can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show or you stream it, if you find us, then follow us. And spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.